Uh, Father in heaven, we're very grateful for this, your word, and I pray for me, for us today, that we'd hear it, and that it would sink deep in us and inform and control, really, our very lives. So help us now take away, I pray, any resistance that we may have to this word, any distraction that may uh, be in us at the moment, so that we can hear this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy in chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to read verses 8 through 15. Now, as I do that, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I'm only going to be able to cover verse 8. So we'll have to take up some of the rest of it on Wednesday, which I think will be a better forum because there's some technical stuff, especially in verses 11 through 15, and thus we might still need to come back to that next Sunday. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'll read this whole section because it comes, it flows together. Verse 8, please. Hear the word of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Um, I know what you're thinking, but I'm only going to do verse 8 today. But I will say that I've covered a great deal of at least what's in 11 through 15. Uh, not too long ago, in September of 2009, when we were working our way through the book of Colossians, and we came to a section on headship and submission, I took a Sunday. It was, I don't know, it was the last Sunday in September and of 2009. So that sermon and a manuscript of that sermon is on the Internet. So I don't know how you get it. Because I don't do that. <laughs> but for those of you who do, and if you don't do that and would like a manuscript of that sermon and the two that follows about all that sort of thing, men and women and gender issues like that, uh, if you call the office, they'll send, we'll send you, a, you know, get you a manuscript if you don't do the internet thing. But, but you can do that. I, I, I made sure that we had all that very clear and in writing and print and all that. So if, if that's an interest of yours, you can. You can look to that. But Paul speaks now to some very specific kinds of gender things, gender issues. He, he singles out men and women and addresses them separately. And it's very clear he's doing that because the word he uses for men in verse 8 is a specific word that means males only. There's a, a couple of Greek words you could have, he could use to, to use men. One is more, can be more generic than the other. This one isn't generic at all. This one simply means men. I'm talking to men here, and the 
word for woman then follows. So, so he's being very specific here. No doubt, because these are particular issues in Ephesus where Timothy is the pastor. And so he wants to address men about praying. He wants to address women about dress and about, and about learning and about authority kinds of things. And so he lays that out here uh, for for them. And, and again, the reason for this is because Paul's writing to Timothy, Timothy the pastor of the church in Ephesus, Timothy, close relationship with Paul as we know. Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith, and so you get this relationship between these two men, this older man, this apostle, pastor, prophet, person, and Timothy, who has been traveling with Paul uh, over, over some time, and you get a sense of mentoring, you get a sense of training, and now he, he puts him, he does, Timothy puts him in Ephesus, and he doesn't leave him there without any help. He says, all right, I'll help you. And so he, begins, he writes these letters to him, First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, these letters to him to, to help him to know what to do. And, and, and you remember from chapter 3, the theme, the reason Paul writes is he says to Timothy, I want to instruct you as how you are to conduct yourself, behave in the household of God, the church of the living God. And so he says, this is, I'm, I'm writing to you about how to conduct yourselves. So Timothy, you need to know that. You're the pastor. Here's how the church conducts itself. Here's how the church behaves. And, and he says that the church is a pillar in support of the truth. And, and so clearly he says to Timothy and the church, you need to guard this truth. You need to protect the truth that was given to you by the apostles. You need to, to, to live it out. You need to proclaim it. But you're, you've been entrusted with this truth. And so it doesn't surprise us when Timothy is, is charged by Paul in the, in the very first chapter to deal with those who are teaching improperly or t- teaching false doctrine. So he says, I want you to deal with that. Walks through, explains that why. Uh, explains why to do that. And now he gets to chapter 2 and, and, and he says, all right, now that we've handled that, essentially, I want to, in the first order, I want you to, 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 to realize that you, when you gather together, you gather together essentially to pray, or we could say to worship. You gather essentially to pray. And so you notice, uh, we talked about this a couple of Sundays ago in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul says, First of all, I urge the supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for all people. So he says, I want you to realize that you're to pray for all kinds of people. And the reason that you're to do that is because it's pleasing to God for you to do that. And the reason that it's pleasing for, to God for you to do that is that the very heart of God is for all people, all kinds of people, to be saved. That's His heart. Now we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that that's, that's a, a little bit um, strange to us. We have some questions about that. We want to say, God, if that's your heart, then save everybody. Because you've saved me, you've saved others, and, and we didn't save ourselves. So if that's the case, then why don't you just simply save all people if that's your heart? And, and we said, well, we don't know exactly, other than it must serve God's saving purpose in some way, not to save all people. And we resonate with that a little bit. For instance, no person goes into teaching to fail students. That's not a teacher's desire. Teacher's desire is to teach students. Now, does a teacher fail some students? Yes. But that's not the heart of a teacher. So we we get that. No person becomes a parent in order to ground their teenagers. Do we ground our teenagers? Oh, yes. (laughs) But, But that's not our purpose in parenting. Our purpose in parenting is to love them and to care for them and to fellowship with them and and all of that. No, 
person becomes a police officer in, police officer in order to send, to take people to jail to arrest people it's to maintain peace to do that and so we see that sometimes these things which take place are necessarily are driving desire but necessary in the midst of that now all of that fails of course because we know that God can can could save if he so desired everyone but he simply doesn't but there's some resonating with his desire even though he doesn't save all people in fact there's a very I'll just leave this with you I didn't do this the other week when I talked about this but I've been reminded of it so I didn't want to be remiss God does speak to it in some way in Romans in chapter 9, verse 22. Paul is writing about this very thing as to God who is compassionate on whom he'll be compassionate and merciful to whom he'll be merciful and so forth. That uh, salvation is of him. And he says, what if, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles also. In other words, he simply says this. What if? Think about this. That in, in God, you're able to know the blessing of your salvation because there are others who aren't saved. And when I read that, I go, okay, I'm done. Only God's the one who can talk like that. Only God's the one who can think like that. And and that just blows every gasket in my mind. But, all right. Now, it it, it does please him. And and in fact, it it is consistent with, with this knowledge of of truth because there's one God thus one way there's one mediator there's only one way to be reconciled to God and that's through Jesus Christ and he's paid the the only satisfactory ransom the only ransom at all and and he's paid it and it's and it's and it's good that is to say Um, it is sufficient and so Paul says pray for all kinds of people because there's one God who has one plan there's one Jesus who's the mediator one ransom pray that they'll receive Jesus to trust in him. And so then Paul gets down down to sort of uh, nitty-gritty, and he's saying here, all right, I desire then that in every place that uh, men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You see, Paul's saying, now listen, when you gather, there are certain things that inhibit worship. Now men, you're to come to pray. And when you pray, you need to do that without anger or quarreling. Because when you're anger, angry and quarreling with one another, then you see your prayers are hindered. You can't pray that way. Now, now women, when you come to worship, you need to be dressed in a godly fashion, in a godly way. 
And, and here Paul doesn't have anything against pigtails or braids or other kinds of things like that per se. But in that culture, this meant something. In that culture, to dress like that meant that you were acting as if you were ungodly. To, to have gold and, and, and the pearls and all of that, again, in other cultures, perhaps in our culture, isn't a bad thing, if you will. But, but there it spoke to something. It says that you were an ungodly woman or a woman who's trying to, to, to draw attention to yourself. And, and Paul is saying, listen, when you do that, it's distracting in worship. So don't come that way. Now, just because he, 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 he spoke to men about anger and quarreling and women about their dress doesn't mean that it's okay for women to come to worship angry and quarreling. And it doesn't mean that it's okay for men to come to worship dressed improperly, whatever that means. But, but, but it's, it, this is, these are issues in Ephesus. These, these are things that they'd read about and go, oh, he's heard about us. All right? And so, so, so just make sure we get that. Now, when he, when he gets down to these issues of teaching and authority, he, he doesn't appeal to culture at all. He appeals to, to creation. He appeals to something theological. And so you take a little more care with those specifics. But when he's talking about these, remember, he, he's speaking to men. When you come to pray, I've heard that you come with quarreling and, and you come angry. And, and so you, you can't do that. But you must pray. Men, you must pray. When you come to this gathering, you must pray. In fact, you can make a case here that men, you must not only pray, but you must lead in prayer. You must lead the congregation in this way. But if you come angry and quarreling, you're not going to be able to do that. You won't be received by God. And women, when you come, your prayers will be hindered. The prayers of the congregation will be hindered. If you come without a godly heart, without a godly attitude, if you come attracting attention to yourselves, now again, as I say, in a different context, in a different situation, Paul might say, women, you're coming angry and quarreling. Stop doing that. Men, you're coming dressed in a particular way that's being distracting. Uh, but, but this fits the context of Ephesus. And, and it may fit in certainly broader contexts as well. But this notion of coming together to pray, men, he says, in every place, lifting holy hands without anger, or quarreling. What's that all about? Now again, he's speaking about the church gathering together. And this little expression in every place is terribly, terribly significant. In this particular context in Ephesus, you would have Jewish believers and Gentile believers as well. Now, that is difficult, I suppose, for us to understand the union of Gentiles and Jews together, worshipping all who name the name of Christ. And if that's the case, if it's difficult for us to imagine why that would be a problem, that's great. Because that's the exact point here. But in the first century, you can only imagine that this, this religion, if you will, this faith in Jesus, that, that sort of came out of this Old Testament, came out of this Old Covenant, came out of this Israelite, came out of this Jewish context, would, would, would need a, a real paradigm mind shift, understanding, and those who are Jewish to think Gentiles could be included as well. Now, there are strong hints of it all through the Old Covenant, all the way back with Abraham. But, but, but still, just because of culture and just because of centuries of, of, of being sort of the people, to think that other people could come into this as well could have been a difficult thing. And then for the Gentiles to say, we can really join with these people, and that would be a difficult thing as well. And so Paul's saying, no, no, no. Every place you go, it doesn't surround anymore 
the temple. It doesn't surround anymore Jerusalem. This is for every place at all times. Do you remember when Jesus met that woman by the well, John in chapter 4? Jesus meets this woman, and, and she's a Samaritan woman. Now, again, you know biblical history. You know that the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. There are all kinds of reasons for that, but one of the key reasons was that the Samaritans had moved the place of worship from Jerusalem uh, to Mount Gerizim. Okay, So they had moved the place of worship from Jerusalem to this other place. Now that was a huge deal. And it was a huge deal because in ancient Israel, God had set up Jerusalem as the place of worship. Um, he had set it up first, you remember, with this traveling tent, this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, this place where God said he would meet his people and moved with the people until they settled. And then finally, after they settled in Jerusalem with David, David brought it uh, to, to Jerusalem. And then you remember the temple was built by Solomon and so forth and so on. But that would be the place where the people would meet God. In fact, when Solomon dedicated that temple... Uh, find this in 1 Kings. When when Solomon dedicated the temple, he said, God, look upon this place night and day. And and when we pray looking upon this place, when we pray coming to this place, please hear us. Forgive our sins. Protect us from our enemies. Give us provision with our crops and all of that. Bless our families. So, so, So this would be the place where people would come to meet God. And of course it would. Because there in the temple, Tabernacle first, there in the temple was everything that was needed for a human being to come into the presence of God. Two things primarily. One, someone holy to represent them before God. And two, a holy sacrifice that God would receive for their sins. Now the holy one to represent them before God was a priest. And we know... They knew, we know, that those priests were just men. But God would take them through a cleansing process, a washing process, if you will, that they would be clean before him. At least outwardly, at least that would be the the ceremony. We'd understand that's what's necessary. I need someone who's clean to to, to represent me before God. And then they would take an an unblemished lamb or animal, uh, uh, an animal that was perfect, if you will, that, that didn't need to be, shouldn't have been killed for any reason of its own. If it had a, if it had a, a blemish or a, a broken leg or something like that, you could say, well, then I could see it's an animal, you, you'd kill it. But, 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 but these animals were perfect. There was no good reason to kill this animal, if you will. And, and that animal, unblemished, then, would be acceptable to God. And, and the people would transfer, if you will, their sin upon the animal, and the animal would die instead of the person. And so in the temple was everything necessary for a person of faith to come and to be received by God. But Jesus knew who he was. In one sense, you could say, he was the very temple of the living God. 
In another sense, you could say, he was that perfect priest to represent us before God. In another sense, we could say, he was that perfect sacrifice to take our sins. All of that coming together in him. And so here he is, he meets this Samaritan woman, and, 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 and they're at this well in the middle of the day, no one else is around. And if you know this story, you know why no one else is around, and all of that kind of thing. But verse 19 in John chapter 4. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is that you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, that is in Jesus, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he was called the Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus has said, Jesus essentially said that a day will come when prayers will be offered everywhere. And so when Paul made that statement, bells and whistles should have been going off in everybody's heads. Oh yes, that's it. Everywhere. Not just in Jerusalem. Everywhere. Why? Because God desires all people, people from every race, every place, to be saved. And so everywhere where people are saved, prayer should be offered. And Paul said, just like in Ephesus. So here, like everywhere, uh, prayers indeed should in fact uh, be offered. So, so Paul makes that, that statement. And he says now, when these prayers are made, of course... That they're made in such a way that uh, um, um, there is no anger or quarreling. These prayers that are coming through these men from this this place. So where the ga- we're to gather, we're to gather to pray. You know, the promise to Abraham was that all the nations of the world would be blessed, not just Israel. All the nations of the world will be blessed. Prophet Malachi even puts it like this in chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, God says, will be great among the nations, and in every place will be offered uh, to my name and, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus gave that great commission. He says, You're to go really everywhere throughout all the earth to make, uh, to make disciples. And again, certainly true. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he, he lays it out uh, with this kind of language in Romans in chapter 15. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to Jews, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that is to Abraham, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and that all peoples extol him. And Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who rises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. So, every place, every place in the world, 
men should pray uh, lifting holy hands. We, we, we pray, obviously. We pray a great deal when we come together. We have a prayer of invocation. That prayer says, God, we need you. We have a prayer of confession. That prayer says, God, we need you. We've sinned. We need your forgiveness. We have a prayer at the offering time. We say, God, we need you. Please use this in such a way that people will hear the gospel. We need you. We're to pray because your heart's desire is that all people are saved. We pray before we read the scripture. We say, God, we need you. Please help us to understand this, to hear this, to believe it. We pray prayers of the people because, because we, we say, God, we need you. We pray when we sing, God, refuge of our weary soul. We pray when we sing, give us clean hands and a pure heart. We pray. That's what we do, you see, when we gather together. Uh, John Calvin uh, puts it like this as he speaks of prayer. I'm going to quote Calvin a good bit this morning. The reason I do that. It's because I don't know what you think of John Calvin when you hear his name. Most of us think of this picture of him, which I don't know how they got it. He was very gaunt and a long, pointy beard. Looks like he should be in Harry Potter. But John Calvin is known in theological circles as the theologian. Now, how would you put that? John Calvin is the theologian of He's known in theological circles historically as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And the reason he's known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit is because he knows that all that we are and all that we have must come from a work of God's Spirit. And when he writes on prayer, I think, and you don't have to take my word for it, most think he may well be at his best. In fact, if you have a copy or you want to buy a copy at Signs of Life or anywhere, borrow my copy, one of my copies, of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, I would suggest to you the best section is on the Lord's Prayer. And I think he writes so well about prayer because he does believe that the necessity of the work of the Spirit in us, and thus it's a crying out to God to work in us by His Spirit. And he believes desperately, as we know, in the sovereignty of God, that God can do all He has promised and will do all that He's promised. So he appeals that we plead to God to do all that He has promised. And so, really, I don't think... We can find anyone better to read on prayer than this great reformer. He writes this, long quote. After St. Paul has informed us that our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and gave himself as a ransom for all, and that the message of salvation is carried in his name to all people, both great and small, he exhorts everyone to call upon God. For this is the true fruit of faith, to know that God is our Father, and to be moved by his love. The way is open for us to run to him, and, and it's easy to pray to him when we're convinced that his eyes are upon us and that he's ready to help us in all our necessities. But until God has called us, we can't come to him without too much impudent boldness. Is it not rashness for mortal man to presume to address himself to God? Therefore, we must wait until God calls us 
which he does by his word. He promised to be our savior and shows that he will always be ready to receive us. He doesn't tarry till we come to seek him, but he offers himself and exhorts us to pray to him. Yes, there is our faith proven. In other words, he said, if you really believe him, you'll pray. And if you don't pray, you have to ask, do I believe him? St. Paul says, How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Thus it may be understood that God is ready to receive us, although we be not worthy. When we once know his will, we may come to him with boldness because he makes himself familiar to us. The apostle adds, Praise the Lord, all ye nations, and praise him, all ye people giving us to understand thereby that the gospel belongs to Gentiles as well as Jews, and that every mouth ought to be open to call upon God for help. It is said in Hosea 2, I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and, and they shall say, You are my God. Therefore, as soon as our Lord God makes us taste His goodness, and promises that even as He sent His only begotten Son to the world, He will accept us in His name, let us doubt not but come immediately to him in prayer and supplication. If we have faith, we must show it by calling upon God. If we make no account of prayer, it's a sure sign that we are infidels. Notwithstanding, we shall make great pretense to a belief in the gospel. Thus, we see what great blessings God bestows upon us when we can have the privilege of prayer. He said, listen, why would you come into the presence of God and not pray? He's called you to it. He's saved you. He's given you access to Him through Christ. He will help you. Pray. So He says, listen, every time you come together, there ought to be men who pray. And they lift up holy hands. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that lifting up our hands is necessarily the best or only posture to pray. It's certainly a posture to pray. People have asked me over the years, why, when the service begins... And do you pray the prayer of invocation with your hands up? And I say, because of First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. There it is. Back when my son was traveling Europe, when he was supposed to be studying there, would enter into churches around Europe and take pictures of himself standing like this, just for me. How oh, to be honored and or mocked by your children. <laughs> There's one in... Geneva, frankly, and Calvin's old pulpit like that as well. But, um, but we're just standing. And there's, there are many ways to, to, to posture ourselves before God. The point is, the posture is to reflect something of the heart. The scripture speaks of bowing in prayer and, and humility and submission. The scripture speaks of, of laying on the ground before God in acknowledgement of of his holiness and awe. I don't know if you've ever prayed that way. Uh, don't do that publicly. People will come and roll you over and give you uh, CPR. But, 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 but when you're home, to be able to pray that way, there's something about that posture of praying. There's a praying we know of the tax collector who beat his chest when he prayed. 
There's praying and standing. That's a very Old Testament way to pray, to pray standing. That's how the congregation would pray. That's the history of the church, really, to stand to pray. That's what I had when we read Psalm 143 this morning, which is a prayer. I hope you read the Psalms, understanding that the prayers of the church and, 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 and allow the Psalms to teach you how to pray, how to express yourself to God, what to say when you pray, what is really meaningful to God as we pray. Read the Psalms. God has given that to us to help us as a songbook and a prayer book. But, but I had you stand because that's a way that the Old Testament congregations would, would, would pray together. They would stand together to pray. You can kneel when you pray. And it, again, submission. But there's this sense of praying and with hands lifted and palms up like this or like this. If you see sort of symbols and prayer books and so forth or in art, it's praying like this or like this. The sense of dependent, yes, but also the sense of, of eager expectation. The sense of, here I am. I'm completely dependent upon you. Please fill me. Enable me to receive from you, you see. Hands raised up. And he says, now listen, when you come to pray, men, you should be leading the congregation in this. You should be standing before your children and standing before your friends and standing before your neighbors and standing before your wives and standing before other men in the community. And here you are and you're standing and you're saying by your very posture, I'm utterly dependent upon God. I don't care what you think of me in the community. I don't care. My standing may be the highest standing in the community. I might be the the wealthiest. I might be the best educated. I, I, I might be the whatever it is. But here I stand and I'm communicating to you and to everybody else that I'm utterly and completely dependent upon God. And if he doesn't fill me, I'm empty. If he doesn't help me, I have no strength. If he doesn't teach me, I have no wisdom. And so he says, now listen, men, when you come together, humble yourselves before the congregation, before God. And so they take your lead. So they go, oh, this is why we're here. We're in the presence of God. You don't have to do this. You can do this. You can do whatever it is that that, 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 that communicates that, the words that you speak, the the look in your face, whatever it is. But but, but Paul's saying, listen, man, when you come and and make sure your hands are holy. You say, what does that mean? Well, this sense of set apart for God. Here's my life. It's set apart for you. This notion of being cleansed. And the Old Testament priests, as they would lead in worship, they would wash their hands. They would wash their hands. It would be a basin, in fact. In the tabernacle, in the temple, there was a, a basin for washing. And the reason there was a basin for washing wasn't necessarily because the priest's hands had gotten dirty from the last sacrifice or that sort of thing. Yes, that, but, but just to show the people, hey, we need to be clean here as we come into the very presence of God. And he says, now you need, to be, you need to be cleansed here. Thus, this sense of Psalm 24 that I, I read for our call to worship this morning, this sense of, of being cleansed as we come before God. Who can come to his holy mountain, his holy hill? Verse 4 of Psalm 24, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, who doesn't swear um, deceitfully. Then in chapter 26, verse 6, David writes, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling of your wondrous deeds. In other words, the sense of, of being clean, the sense of being cleansed. 
And of course, we know that we're not clean. We're only cleansed because of the blood of Jesus. And so we come in faith. When we lift holy hands, we're saying, I've been cleansed by Jesus. This isn't something of my own. I've been cleansed by Jesus. And now I'm committed to walk in this way. That's why the Apostle James could write in James chapter 4. In verse 8, he writes, Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he'll exalt you. The apostle is saying, listen, when you draw near to God, remember, you must be sorry for your sin. You must be sorry for your sin. You must get it. And so as you come, you must know your need of cleansing, but also know... That this cleansing comes through faith in Jesus because of what he did to cleanse. So receive that cleansing and come, draw near, come into this, the very presence of God. But of course what this means, what this means to come with holy hands, pure heart and so forth, is it means that we come into the very presence of God without anger and without quarreling. Let me say, well, why did he put that? Well, because in Ephesus, there was all kinds of quarreling uh, going on. For instance, in, in, in 1 Timothy and chapter 6 and, and verse 4, uh, Paul writes this, well, verse 1, or verse uh, 2, he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, a slander, evil suspicions, and a constant friction among people who are of depraved mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He says, listen, there's all kinds of controversies that can be stirred up. In Second Timothy, in chapter 2, Paul writes to the same Timothy in the same place, same church, and says, verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Verse 23 says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. How do you know that churches breed foolish and ignorant controversies all the time? Things we needn't be having controversies about. That's why I actually love our denominational motto. It's an old one. No one knows quite where it came from. Some take it back to the Reformation, others all the way back to St. Augustine. But in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, of course, there's nuances there, how you define essentials versus non-essentials and all of that. But we want to keep the main thing, the main thing. And we want to stay out of all these little controversies, all these little discussions that, that can cause people to, to, to get off track, really, and think that's the main thing. And I think of just some contemporary things and things that, that, that we stay away from in our own church, like how a person schools their children or certain political kinds of things in terms of who you vote for and why and all of that. You can talk about all these things among yourselves, but, but this isn't what the church is about, really, you see. Or whether women work outside the home or not. That, this isn't, this, that's, that's up to you, not up to me, not up to the church, the elders, to make an edict about that. It's not what we're about, really, you see. 
So there's all kinds of things like that that our elders we have to be wise about. Let's not get into that. Well, there are other things we have to get into because those are essential kinds of things. But we need to be humble even in the midst of that and loving in the midst of that, you see. So we be cautious. I'll never forget. Years ago in another church where I served, which is the only other church I've served since I've been here most of my life. <coughs> or at least in the graying of my life. But um, I remember a dear man. His name was Wynne Byrne. He's now deceased, so I can use his name. And um, he, was, he was the sweetest man I think I knew. He was in his 70s when I met him, which was really old to me then. But, uh, but he, um, he was just a dear man. And, and then I realized over the course of a month or so, I hadn't seen him at church, which was unusual. Because not only did he show up on Sundays, he almost always showed up at least once or twice during the week, knocked on my door, popped his head in and said, are you doing okay? He was just that kind of guy. And I hadn't seen him, and I wondered why, so I called, and I realized that he had left the church. And he had left the church because we had purchased a new organ in the church. And I said, the old organ was falling apart. And I came to learn that he was the chairman of the organ committee that bought the organ that we replaced. And when we talked about buying a new organ, you had to say why the old organ was bad, and that made him feel bad, and nobody knew it. And he left the church. The sad part of that is, by the time I called him six weeks after he had left the church, that week he found out he had cancer. Two weeks after that, he was dead. And we missed the fellowship of being with him in those last weeks of his life. All over a musical instrument. And it just broke my heart. And I thought, we mustn't ever make those things so big that we'll miss out on being with one another when we really need one another. And so Paul says, listen, when you come together don't be spatting about all these things that don't matter. Deal with them. Now, how do you do that? How do you deal with this? Because some of these things do matter. Some of these things are important, at least to us. So, so how do we deal with that? Well, you know how to deal with this. In humility to realize that if any of us is right about anything, it's only because God has enabled us to be right about that. And if we have anything that's good, it's only because God has given to us, not because we deserved it. And so somebody else may be wrong about these things. Maybe we didn't need a new organ. I don't know. I know nothing about organs. Um, but, but if somebody's wrong about that, trust God. Especially on these non-essential kinds of things. Trust God. He'll work that out. Pray for them. But when you come, leave those things away. Because you see, our coming together is coming together. And that's what's pleasing to God. That's why God says, listen, if you're bringing a gift to the altar and there's some issue going on among you, really, leave that gift. Don't bring it. That's, that's, it's not about the giving of it. It's about your heart and coming together. 
Because you see, one of the works that Christ has done is not only joining us together with, with him, with the Father, but also joining us together with one another. He is our peace so that we can come with one voice together and access to one Father who is our Father. And so we have to be careful about these things and wise about these things and, and how we live about these things, else we won't be heard by God. You remember what Peter says to husbands? He says, husbands, love your wives in an understanding way because if you don't, It'll hinder your prayers. John writes in 1 John in chapter 3 this. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and treasure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ. And love one another just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments and abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given to us. You see, we, when we come together to pray, it says men need. Express your dependence, your need for God before everybody. When you do that, what you're saying is, it's all about him. And if anything's right about us, it's because he made it right about us. And so let's come now together. So if you know anybody has something against you, go to them. Now, if you're hurt by somebody else, deal with it. Pray. Love covers a multitude of sins. You may have to go if it's a big deal. But chances are, you might be able to cover that one. But if you know you've heard them, then, oh, by all means, go. We usually do it the other way around because we normally feel our hurts way more than we feel the hurts that we've put on someone else. Jesus spoke to that, you know, about the long inspecting. But, 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 because we don't want our prayers to be hindered. Because we need to pray. Let me end with Mr. Calvin. He says, we shall not have access to God by prayer unless we be joined together. For he that separates himself from his neighbor shuts his own mouth so that he cannot pray to God as our Lord Jesus Christ has commanded. To be short, we must agree together and be bound in a bond of peace before we can come nigh and present ourselves to God. These Discords and debates of which we have spoken existed between Jews and Gentiles. St. Paul shows that they cannot call upon God without being these things refused and cast back until they be at peace with one another. That is the reason why he requests them here to lift up holy hands without wrath and quarreling. He would not have each one to remain by himself, but would have us unite in peace and concord, although everyone speak Though everyone be a part in his own place and pray to God in secret, yet must our consent come to heaven, and we must all say with one affection and in truth, Our Father, this word our, must bind us together and so make us in fellowship with one another that there will be, as it were, but one voice, one heart, one spirit. Moreover, when we pray, let the churches be joined together. 
If we wish to pray aright, we must not do like those who endeavor to divide that which God has joined together under color of some little ceremony which is not worthy of our notice, separating ourselves from one another and dismembering the body. For those that conduct themselves in this manner show plainly that they're possessed with the spirit of Satan and are endeavoring to destroy the union that exists among the children of God. Our Lord Jesus said, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave that gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer the gift. Do we wish God to be merciful to us? If we do, we must lay aside all enmity against one another. For if we be divided among ourselves, God will cast us off. For he will receive none but those who are members of his Son. And we cannot be members of Jesus Christ unless we be governed by his Spirit, which is the Spirit of peace and unity. As we've already shown, let us therefore learn to live in friendship and brotherly love if we wish to be received when we come to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us our sins. Forgive us, me, when we, when I have made more of something than it should have been made of. Give us wisdom to know that which is essential. Give us wisdom to know that which is not. Give us your spirit that we may love in all circumstances. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.